0: You are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. We're looking. This morning at chapter 1 and verses 7 through 10. You're going to find this on page 774 of the Pew Bible. We're picking things up. We're going to actually read four verses and look at four verses together this morning. So we're reading verses 7 through 10 out of Jonah chapter 1. Hear the word of God. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Well, as you remember, Jonah the prophet had been called to preach God's word to the great city of Nineveh. And, of course, these were the sworn enemies of Judah, and he wanted nothing to do with them. Knowing God to be a gracious and merciful God, he figured that the Ninevites would be spared. So he fled on a ship bound for Tarshish, hoping to avoid his commission. And what's amazing to me, and perhaps even to you, is that God didn't judge him or abandon him, but began the process of reclaiming him. We're told that the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and the result was a mighty tempest. And it was especially strong, such that the sailors realized that this was extraordinary. And they began crying out to their false gods while Jonah slept down below. He was exhausted from bearing the burden of his disobedience to God. The captain went down into the hold and found him asleep on his hammock and rebuked him for his indifference. What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. And we noted how ironic it was that the pagan sailors were seeking deliverance while the Jewish prophet was defying God. One would think that it would be the other way around, but not in this instance. Robert Trail says, a heathen shipmaster challenging a godly prophet for his neglect of seeking God? That's irony. The patience and the grace and the mercy of God are truly amazing divine virtues. And yet through it all, the steadfast love of the Lord proved to be unwavering because he kept calling the prophet and the prophet kept refusing to listen. Things would get worse, but his steadfast love endures forever. And there are two things about these pagan mariners that I want us to consider. First of all, you'll notice that they assumed from the outset that a crime had been committed. A storm of that magnitude must be the penalty for some heinous crime. So the question was not, is someone guilty, but rather, who is the guilty man? The second thing is this. They sought to expose the culprit by the ancient practice of casting lots. This custom used to decide doubtful questions was of great antiquity. Very popular in the ancient world. Practically nobody doubted the decision that it reached. It was by lot, for example, that Israel's inherited land was divided up among the tribes. It was by lot that the scapegoat was selected on the great day of atonement. Again, it was by lot that Saul was identified as king and Achan as the troubler of Israel. And even in the New Testament, Matthias was chosen by lot and added to the apostleship to fill the vacancy left by Judas. So we're told by the wise men in Proverbs 16 that the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And if done right, this custom is a solemn appeal to the sovereignty of God. Mixed with faith and prayer, it relies on his omniscience and his omnipotence, knowing all things, all-powerful. It acknowledges his absolute control over all things, even to the casting of a lot. The fall of a hare, the descent of a sparrow, is no less directed by God than the birth of a prince or the fall of an empire. All of it is directed by God. And when the sailors cast their lots, the lot fell upon Jonah. (laughs) And it shows that you can run, but you cannot hide So having narrowed the field of candidates, the mariners asked him about the details of Jonah's life. And of course, up until this point, all that mattered was the fact that he was a paying customer. (laughs) But the raging storm and the lot cast focused all attention upon the prophet. Every detail about this stranger suddenly became vitally important. Question after question tumbles out. And the men were frantically searching for answers. Why is this happening? What do you do? Where are you from? Who are your people? And you can sense the sheer terror in their questions, fear, gripping every one of them. And at this point, Jonah realizes that he couldn't escape. There's no more running. The man was physically and emotionally and spiritually exhausted, so he begins to spill his guts. I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And as a Hebrew, he was one of God's covenant people, a member of the chosen nation. And he feared Yahweh, whose throne is in heaven, who is the maker of both sea and dry land. And according to verse 10, he told them that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. He made no secret of it. He admitted to disobeying the Almighty. He'd sinned out of neither ignorance, nor weakness, nor exhaustion. No, Jonah had been sitting with a high hand. He was running away and rebelling against the Most High. And I want you to look at his downcast eyes. I want you to see his broken and contrite spirit as he confesses. And in light of all of his covenantal advantages, Jonah's sin was greatly aggravated. He was a disobedient prophet. He was in defiance of the living God. And it's no wonder then the sailors were terrified. It says they were exceedingly afraid because those pagan mariners knew that a dishonored God is an angry God. And their panic rose as the storm grew more intense and the sea more tempestuous. As for Jonah, he had confessed his sin. And that was a step in the right direction. To acknowledge the disease starts to appreciate the need for the right remedy, correct? And we see here in Jonah's confession solid evidence of genuine saving faith. He had sinned. He'd sinned grievously and heinously. He disobeyed the Lord, and in so doing... Technically, he forfeited all expectation of God's favor and forgiveness. And yet the Lord is so rich in mercy and so abundant in grace that that's exactly what he gave to Jonah. The process wasn't over. God was proceeding with the restoration of his prophet. But it shows again that not even Jonah's own sin could separate him from his God. Paul says in Ephesians 2, God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Do you hear what he said? The love of God is great love. The mercy of God is rich mercy. It's lavish. In and through Jesus Christ, God saves those who are undeserving and unworthy. That's you and me. And so we learn here, among other things, that true believers may experience serious spiritual decline. Jonah was in a bad spot. Sin had robbed him of his assurance and his contentment. As a believer, though, he was being preserved by God But this period in his life was characterized by misery. His disobedience on that ship had stripped away all of his confidence of his own salvation. And of course, his salvation was never in question. But that's not how he felt. You know, assurance is a very delicate thing. Various things can destroy our assurance, right? Physical sickness can take it away, strong temptations, divine testing, disobedience. These things can come, and our assurance ebbs and flows, and when a believer sins, assurance evaporates. The fact is, the Christian life is never static, it's never motionless. A believer either is moving forward or falling back. There is no middle option, forward or backward, that's it, no neutral. Now, a true Christian will never be utterly estranged from the Lord Jesus. We know that. There will always be such a presence and support of the Spirit of God as keeps that person from utter despair. It's sort of like sailing on a ship. The Christian can fall down on deck, but the Christian will never fall overboard because he's kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. So Jonah shows that true believers may experience times of spiritual decline. Look at at five of the seven churches whom Jesus addressed in Revelation 2 and 3. They were in serious decline. And because believers are true, such times are especially painful. Because you and I were made to commune with God. We were made to fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's that eternity that he put in our hearts. And when we sense that that sweet fellowship is interrupted, it's a miserable feeling. But you know something? There's the silver lining. Feeling miserable is a sign of grace. A hypocrite doesn't lose anything of value to him when his religion dims. Let's be honest. His reputation might take a hit, but deep down, he doesn't really care. The true Christian longs for communion offered by God in Christ. Psalm 63 is a perfect example. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. That's the description of the hunger and the thirst of a true Christian for God. And that secret, hidden yearning helps drive that Christian to renewed repentance. But then we also learn here that spiritual declension can be very difficult to discern at first. Notice how Jonah was forced on his flight, focused on his flight to Tarshish, not on spiritual things. That was his focus. Those five churches, Revelation 2 and 3, had, may have been surprised at the Lord's rebukes. What? Us, Ephesus, we're doing pretty well. Orthodox, productive, active. We've left our first love. You see, spiritual decline often begins gradually, almost imperceptibly. If you ask any arborist, I don't know if we have an arborist here with us, but he'll tell you that it's difficult to discern the initial stages of a tree's disease. Very difficult. Just the tips of the branches show any signs of infection, and you need a trained eye to be able to see it. Because only as the disease starts to spread and take over does the tree begin to show signs of dying. Well, I think that's a helpful analogy to the way many Christians spiritually decline. The signs of decline start out small. They're subtle. They're hardly noticeable. Over time, the spiritual disciplines begin to wane. Spiritual fervor starts to dissipate. And as the disease spreads, the spiritual declension becomes more obvious, and he starts living in a way such that an impartial observer probably wouldn't even know that he's a Christian. One cause of spiritual decline is holding on to theological error. Just consider the Galatians. Remember them? By listening to the false teachers, they were being seduced from the gospel. It was subtle. It didn't happen all at once, but the effects were soon visible. And poison is seldom taken in large doses. It's often mingled in small amounts with food. The Ukrainian opposition leader, Viktor Yushchenko, you're probably familiar with him from the news reports, Victor Yushenko was slowly poisoned by his enemies. His wife remembers tasting something mysterious on his lips when she would kiss him, and she didn't think much of it until he was suddenly rushed to the hospital, and he almost died. Analogous to that is the influence of theological error on the human soul. Its poisonous influence kills not all at once, but gradually over time. And thus, Paul says, Christ gives gifts to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Another cause of spiritual decline is the horrible vice of spiritual pride, You know something, few things can cause as much damage to a soul as this brand of pride. It's being proud of our spiritual advantages and blessings as if somehow we deserve them. It means looking down on others simply because they're not enjoying them. They're out there. Of this, of course, the Pharisees are guilty or were And Jesus, you'll remember, used his most severe rebukes for the Pharisees. Solomon says, one's pride will bring him low. It reminds me, and perhaps you too, of proud Haman who was hanged on his own gallows. Because God opposes the proud. He stands at odds with those who are haughty in their own eyes. But the problem is, Let's face it, you and I are by nature spiritually proud. (laughs) That's who we are. And sinners have no true humility unless the Spirit of God intervenes. That's one reason why the new birth is so important, because humility is a gift. Paul was afflicted, you remember, by God with a thorn in the flesh to guard against what? Spiritual pride. Ministers are especially prone to this temptation in feeling pride in their gifts. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool, but this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You hear what he's saying? He who made the universe looks with favor on humble Penitent hearts. What a gracious God. Another cause of spiritual decline in the Christian can be creeping worldliness. You know some, what these are, those excessive desires for the things of this world, an exaggerated attachment to stuff. A slow but steady increase of covetous desires or a decadent spirit. And if such an inclination as this is not rooted out by the Spirit, spiritual decline is inevitable. It's love of the world. It's worldliness. And it's entirely inconsistent with a sincere love for Jesus Christ. The Apostle John says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So what are we supposed to do? Be crucified to the world. Let your love be reserved for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because our hearts, the human heart, is narrow. It cannot possibly manage both love for God and love for the world. It just is impossible. And worldliness is a soul killer. Covetousness and greed and overly expensive tastes and if that happens, the world becomes this usurper of our affections and it dampens the faith in Christ. And so insofar as love we love the world and it prevails, the health of the soul will decline in proportion. Very dangerous. But then another cause, and perhaps the most lethal, is either the practice of sin or the neglect of duty. In other words, The habitual and persistent sins of commission or omission and such disobedience, and we all know it, will ensure that the soul is weak or feeble or dead. Mark Twain, the great American author, he married Oliver Langdon. She was a very simple, devout Christian woman when he married her. For a while after they were married, they had prayer at meals and they read the Bible together each and every day. But Twain was an unbeliever, and it wasn't long before his influence encouraged them to abandon these spiritual disciplines. Slowly, Oliva loosened her grip on her beliefs and her faith was badly shaken. After their infant son Langdon died in infancy... Their two daughters died in their youth. And Twain said at that point to his wife, if it comforts you to lean on your Christian faith, then go ahead and do so. In response, she said, sadly, I can't, because I don't have any faith to lean on. You see, the neglect of God's appointed means had left her in serious decline. His unbelieving attitude had such a negative impact on his wife that not even he wanted that to take place. All these things can cause a professing Christian to decline spiritually. But I want us to see in the example of Jonah that, rest assured, God will do whatever it takes to reclaim and refresh a declining child. That's the wonderful promise. Look at Jonah, the Lord hurls this great wind and a mighty tempest, which was necessary. It wasn't pleasant, it wasn't painless, but it was necessary. And even worse, this man would spend three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish. Disgusting. But while the trial itself was difficult, the fruit would be very sweet. What does the psalmist say? Weeping. May tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. If Jesus doesn't help, no creature can help. If Jesus helps, no creature can hinder. And those who place their trust in him will be safe and secure under his protection. What did we sing? The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. He keeps you. He protects you. He even refreshes you like an afternoon shade. And no real evil will ever hurt you. And no mere evil will ever happen to you because he overrules it all for good. If we're afflicted, it's only as God sees that it's good for us and will do good to us. Because with infinite wisdom and almighty power, and that's who God is, he serves as our protection and our refreshment. And he'll preserve the soul, or as the ESV has it, he'll keep your life. We're taught, and I'm so grateful for this part of the New Testament, that the Lord is able to save to the uttermost because he ever lives to make intercession. But I want us also to see and notice that the exposure of Jonah's guilt was a mercy from the throne of heaven. You know something? Some sins are not discovered until they come to light at the day of reckoning. Did you notice that from 1 Timothy 5? The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. You see them. But the sins of others appear later. That's when all the hidden things of darkness will be brought into the open. So while it is painful, it was painful for Jonah, a present discovery is far better than a future judgment. Those whose sins stay hidden in this life often just harden their hearts. Ecclesiastes 8, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. You see what he's saying? If sin is left unexposed, a person may think that justice is never going to be executed. They become emboldened to pursue the more mischief and disobedience. The sinner prospers, the heart hardens, the soul grows callous. And there is no greater danger than to be left to one's own sinful desires. That's the worst. A discovery And exposure now may be the means of awakening the sinner's repentance. And this is what the Lord did with Jonah. He didn't leave him to himself. He exposed Jonah's scheme and rebellion through the storm and the casting of lots. When it was exposed, he admitted his guilt, accepted the consequences. He was brought to shame, and thus he was brought to repentance. And I believe we see here that it's better to have them exposed while there's still time to repent. He admitted to being a Hebrew, one of Abraham's descendants, and so doing acknowledged the great privilege he'd enjoyed. He confessed to fearing Yahweh, the creator of all things great and small, and he exalted his God above all the local false deities in the world. And it was a bold and honest confession. It was no less full than it was forthright. Without reserve, Jonah condemned himself. In the presence of the crew, he disobeyed God. He had ignored his commission. He neglected the faith. And now he held nothing back. The floodgates had opened up. And with this confession, he proved the sincerity of his repentance. It's a glorious thing. And I want you to see how scripture is clear on how the penitent confessor will be treated by God. Proverbs 28, 13, you can even memorize it. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Do you see how the wise man draws a sharp contrast between these two approaches? On the one hand... The sins are unconfessed and hidden, doesn't prosper. Was that not the reaction of our first parents? And you see how they fared. The voice of an offended God called Adam out of hiding to curse him. On the other hand, you have the sins confessed and forsaken and he obtains mercy. The former in pride conceals his sin. The latter in humility admits his sin. So any attempt to cover sin will not prosper. But grace prevails when the first act of repentance, confession, is sincerely made. And a sincere confession is not meant to inform God. It's required for our good. It's a first step toward receiving mercy, being spared from what we deserve. Jesus fully satisfied all the demands of justice. But you see, satisfaction has to be applied, appropriated. And this the Spirit does in part by enabling the sinner to confess sin. And the Father waits for it. And the Father longs for it. And the Father's ready to extend mercy upon it. As soon as David confessed one statement, divine mercy was granted. God wiped him clean, crossed off his debt, restored the penitent believer. The dying thief confessed, and what happened? On that day, he was crowned with life. The proverb indicates that true confession is followed by turning and forsaking the sin. And when that happens, we're told that with the Lord, there is steadfast love and with him plentiful redemption, plentiful redemption. And so we can thank God this morning for his rich mercy and his abundant grace, because none of us here today have any hope without it. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. We say these things all the time, and yet when we read of it in the life of Jonah, it comes to us with fresh force and appreciation. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who endured such agony on our behalf to pay the full debt of our sins. We pray that you'll help us to sing your praise with joy and gratitude in our hearts, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.